Maybe things have gone well for you. Or maybe you come here today at the end of a very difficult week, difficult month, difficult year, and you're feeling beaten down. You're feeling weak and you're feeling powerless. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. about you, but every once in a while, I'll have a really, really tough week. I actually remember back when I was in college, I'd had a really, really difficult week. I don't recall precisely what had happened, but what I do remember is that at the end of the week, I was just beat. And... I remember the college atmosphere because by the time you kind of get to Friday morning, Friday at noon, Friday afternoon on an Adventist college campus, there tends to be a little bit more joy. You know, people are beginning to go out to have a good time. People are going out to eat for lunch, you know, going away for the weekend. There is more joy. So at the end of the week, I had been looking forward to just really anything. The week had been difficult, and I thought, I got out of my last class, and I thought, man, I could use uh, some coffee. I'll be up late tonight anyway. So I got in my car, drove to one of the local coffee shops there in Walla Walla, and got something that I liked. I don't remember what it was, but I remember that I enjoyed it. And then I got it, and I was driving back to campus probably to hang out with friends or do whatever I was going to do. And I remember thinking, here we are. It's the end of this blasted week, and I am going to have a good weekend. Well, I arrived at campus, and I was getting to my apartment there. So I opened the door to my car, got out of the car, got my coffee, my backpack, my things. And I remember as I opened that door and stepped out of the car with all of the things I was juggling in tow. I don't know how it happened, but as I got out, coffee in hand, I just turned quickly and just like hit the door of my car with that cup of coffee by accident. And let me tell you, that thing exploded everywhere. It was all over the door of my car, all over my pants, shoes, all over the floor of my car. And I just stood there for a second, not really knowing what to do. I didn't have a lot of money and I just spent like five bucks on this thing. And it had already been a difficult week. And I looked down at myself and I was like, as if it could have gotten any worse. Are you kidding me? I don't know about you, 
But sometimes when I'm feeling discouraged and beaten down, something that may appear so small and so innocuous just makes everything that much worse. Or perhaps your story is different. Perhaps you're feeling good. Maybe you've had a good week, but then something major has happened to change what's going on and it makes you feel oh so much worse. Over the course of the past year, I believe many of us have had difficult years for a variety of reasons. And naturally that has only been exacerbated by the existence of a global pandemic. And that has made things hard for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Well, back this past December, January or so, I had planned with uh, some members of my family and uh, a couple close friends of mine to go on a ski trip to Copper Mountain in Colorado, something I'd looked forward to a great deal. Well, you know, the days came and went, the weeks came and went, and it was getting closer and closer. And as you all know, traveling during a pandemic is not an easy thing to do. Traveling, especially by plane, means you have to be very careful. You don't want to catch something. You want to make sure you haven't got something before you go. And all these different things, you know. Traveling is already difficult enough. This is only made it even harder. Well, if I remember correctly, it was, I think, less than a week before we were supposed to go. And I began to feel kind of funny. And I thought... Oh, it couldn't be. I have been oh so careful. I've spent time around only a very small group of people. I wear a mask. I don't, you know, I don't do things that I would normally do in normal life. And I thought, hmm, I don't think I've caught the coronavirus, but maybe I have. So I got a test and it came back negative. And I thought, okay, we're in the clear. We're good to go. But then my feelings only worsened. And I really thought, I was like, man, I tested negative already. Could I have possibly caught something? So I went down to Ontario Airport, you know, 25 minutes from here or so. We had a clinic where they do rapid tests. And let me tell you, it's not cheap. But I went there and paid for a test. You know, they stick the swab up your nose. Um, and they did the test. And along with that test, they also do a flu test. And I remember thinking, I have never prayed so hard to get the flu. <laughs> I have never wanted the flu more in my life than I do right now. But uh, I waited, and it was supposed to be like a couple hours. And so I waited, you know, they said they text me and they sent me an email. So I went back home, was just doing whatever I was doing at home. And I waited and I waited, and it wasn't long. It was actually probably within 45 minutes. They were quick. And I got that text and it said positive. And let me tell you, I was not very happy. I was very discouraged. Well, come to find out, another one of my good friends who had also planned to go on the trip gave me a call and said uh, they had also tested positive. And it felt like this trip that I'd been looking forward to for so long because I hadn't done anything else in the past nine months just all fell to pieces within a matter of days. And believe me, I was discouraged. So I don't know about you, 
But I think discouragement and feeling badly can often reign supreme in situations like these. So I don't know where you come from today. Maybe you have had a good week. Maybe you've gone out there, you know, done well in school, things at your job have gone well, things in your personal life, whether it is your parents, siblings, spouse, a significant other, friends, family, maybe things have gone well for you. Or maybe you come here today at the end of a very difficult week, difficult month, difficult year, and you're feeling beaten down, you're feeling weak, and you're feeling powerless. Well, today, we start the final part of a five-part series in the book of Revelation. Over the past four weeks, Pastor Philip, along with some guest speakers, have talked through different parts of Revelation and what those things mean to us. But today we get to part five. And today we talk about what it means to be persistent in faith, even when the world around you is falling to pieces. And that can be a bit of a difficult concept because that is not necessarily an easy thing for us to do. And so we're going to read a text. We're going to read a text out of Revelation in the third chapter. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you will know that there in the third chapter, we encounter a few of the seven churches of Revelation as they are termed. Well, the one we're going to read about today is the Church of Philadelphia, and we'll start in verse 7. But before we start, let's talk about the city of Philadelphia itself. The city of Philadelphia was a city in ancient Greece. And there were a few things of note about that city, a few things that are important to know as we talk about it. Um, first of all, Philadelphia itself was a relatively new city in the context of those times and of those places. It hadn't been around for terribly long. In fact, it had been founded as a colony of Pergamum, another one of the cities um, in the seven churches of Revelation. And it had been founded as a colony not for military gain, but instead to essentially spread the Greek culture around. It was founded right and put right at the border of Mycia, Lydia, and Phrygia, three different kind of areas in ancient Greece. And the city did its job well. The language and the culture of Greece spread around that area, and the surrounding peoples and nations began to adopt that culture. So it did what it was supposed to do. Furthermore, it was at the end of a great volcanic plain, so the soil there was very fertile, and it gave way to vineyards. The city was famous for its wine. So it had a lot of good things about it. However, it had one negative thing about it. You see, early on in the first century, in AD 17, there was an earthquake that rocked many of the cities in that region. In fact, 10 of the cities, including Philadelphia, had been essentially knocked to the ground by this earthquake. And while many of the surrounding cities recovered, Philadelphia's case is a bit different. You see, Philadelphia was prone to aftershocks for years and years after the earthquake. In fact, many of these aftershocks were so strong that it sent things in the city, walls, streets, even buildings, crashing to the ground. The citizens of that city lived in constant fear, and many of them didn't even live inside walls because they were so afraid. The reality or the idea of another earthquake hitting their city was always in the back of their minds. 
So that's kind of the context into which we step today. It's a city known for many good things in its context, yet a city that lives in constant fear of physical destruction and harm, and they cannot control it. So with that in mind, we're going to turn here to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to read what the angel writes to that city. We'll start with verse 7. So here's what the text says. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he sees, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So there are a couple things that I think immediately kind of come to mind as we read that first portion of the text there. There are a couple of descriptors that are given to the church there in the city of Philadelphia. First of all, they are described as weak. So the question immediately arises, why are they weak? What is the deal with the church here in the city of Philadelphia? Well, the first thing that I think comes to mind is they are likely, as scholars say, a church of a very small size and very little influence. So in the world around them, in that city, there is not a whole lot they can do. And so for that reason, they struggle. But secondly, and I think as is highlighted in the text, perhaps more importantly, Jesus here refers to something called the synagogue of Satan, people who claim to be Jews but are not. In fact, some pretty harsh words are used there in that context. So who are they? Who are the synagogue of Satan? Well, if you've read the book of Revelation and you know what's going on here, this is actually not the first time that they have been referred to. We hear them referred to in chapters in churches previous to this one here. And the synagogue of Satan are actually ethnic Jews, and people are probably religious Jews too. But the issue is that these people there in the synagogue of Satan, as it's referred to, are hostile towards this new Christian church. They spread lies, they spread rumors, they will not allow them to worship in the synagogue. And that's a problem. They're not having a good time. In fact, if you want to hear some of the things they say about this church, it's actually quite something. They'll spread rumors like such. They'll say that the Christians are atheists because they don't worship idols. They say the Christians were cannibals because they ate the body and blood of Christ. They claim the Christians were participating in orgies because their common meals were called agape feasts or love feasts. They say these people are politically dangerous because they wouldn't declare Caesar as Lord. So imagine all of that. Your church is already struggling. It's small, it's weak, it doesn't have a lot of influence. Then these other people, who are probably ethnically the same as you, also Jews, come around and spread all these terrible rumors about who you are. So they've got kind of, you know, a perfect storm here. These are two very negative circumstances. They're in the middle of hard times, and they're weak people. And this is the point in the letter where something becomes apparent that is not true of many of the other letters written in this section. And that is that Jesus says nothing negative about this church. If you go read the other seven letters 
to the churches, or the other six letters, excuse me, to the churches there in Revelation. There's only one other church that that is true of. All the rest of these churches, Jesus has positive things to say, and he has negative things to say. But about these people who are living in this tremendously difficult time, there's nothing there. Nothing negative. He says, I know your deeds. You have kept my word and not denied my name. So clearly, this is a tremendous commendation to this church, right? Imagine if Jesus were to come here and say that to us today. We're in the middle of struggles. Jesus walks down here in the middle aisle, looks out at us and says, listen, I understand you're struggling and things are not going well for you. And yet you have not denied my name. You've stayed strong. You've stayed the course. This is a good church. That would be quite something. And that's precisely what he says to this church here in Philadelphia. So what we have is hard times and weak people, but we have a strong Jesus. And he makes that very clear. In fact, he establishes his authority here. He says three different things to make that point. So the first thing he says is these are the words of him who is holy. So Jesus establishes himself as holy. And by saying this, he separates himself from the rest of humanity just the way that God does it throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, listen, I am differentiated from you because I am holy. Then the second thing he says is, these are the words of him who is true. Now, when we read the Bible, we come across that word true or truth a fair number of times. And in the New Testament, there are a couple of Greek words that are used in order to translate that word. The first is aletheis. And aletheis is a word that is used to differentiate between what is true and what is false. A truth and a lie, honesty, dishonesty. And that's actually not the word that's used here. The second word is called aletheinos. And this word is used slightly differently because this is used to differentiate between what is real and what is not real. And so when Jesus is saying that he is true here, he's saying he's the personification of truth. He is real. And I think that's an important distinction to make. And then finally, Jesus says a third thing. He makes the claim that he is the one who has the key to the city of David. He's the key that will open the door and no one else will be able to shut it. Jesus claims to be that final authority. And he says, I am above everyone else here, above anyone else. He establishes himself. He says he is the clear number one. Jesus is holy. Jesus is true. And he can open and close whatever he chooses to open and close. Now, there is a door here, as the text says. It says he's placed in front of them an open door that no one can shut. So naturally, the question arises, well, what does that mean? What is that open door? And biblical scholars and theologians have a few different theories as to what exactly Jesus is referring to here. But there is one theory, I think, that takes precedent above all the others. And that is this. Remember, the city of Philadelphia is a cultural gateway, right? It was used by Pergamum and the rest of Greece to kind of spread their culture, their language to the surrounding cities and peoples. And so here, I think Jesus is saying, this is a tremendous opportunity, right? Look what this city is being used for. It is being used for the Greeks to spread their own culture. It is being used by the Greeks to spread their own language. And I have put you right here and the point of what you're supposed to do is to sit here and spread the gospel. You sit at the border of a few different regions. You have a tremendous opportunity in front of you. 
So go out and proselytize the surrounding nations. Now, there's a book entitled The Top 10 Qualities of a Great Leader, and the author of that book, Dr. Phil Pringle, tells the following story. He says, back in the late 1840s to the early 1850s, the potato famine in Ireland severely harmed the population of Western Ireland. For years, they were unable to grow potatoes at their usual rate, and they were beaten down and broken because of this famine. It majorly affected them in a negative way. John Bloomfield, the owner of Castle Caldwell in County Fermanagh, was working on the recovery of his own estate when he noticed that the exteriors of his tenant farmer's small cottages had this vivid white finish. He was informed that there was a clay deposit on his property of unusually fine quality. And so in order to generate some revenue and provide employment on his estate, he built uh, essentially a pottery factory there at the village of Belique in 1857. This unusually fine clay yielded a porcelain china that was translucent with a glass-like finish. It was worked into traditional Irish designs. It was an immediate success. Today, Belique Pottery is a multi-million dollar company and their products can be purchased all over the world. So during a time when the situation was grim and the outlook was not good, the surroundings were tough, John Bloomfield saw an open door, an opportunity, and he took advantage of it. So there is an opportunity here for this church, this church here in Philadelphia. And Jesus says, listen, despite your weakness and despite your feebleness, I've given you a chance. Even though you have little strength, show the world around you my way. And Jesus understands weakness. He himself has been in that position before. Even when he was up on the cross, he witnessed to the people next to him and around him. So Jesus gives this church here in Philadelphia a chance to do the same. So here we've got this question, right? Uh, here we've got this equation, excuse me. Hard times plus weak people plus a strong Jesus equals what? Endless opportunity. There's an invitation to live that life of Christ despite the current state in which you might be living. Jesus says that even though life might hit you over the head, you've got a message to bring to the dark world around you. Now, the last part of this message that Jesus gives to the church there in Philadelphia is actually an encouragement. So we're going to return to the text here and read this last few verses. This time we'll read starting with verse 11. And he says this, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's this last part. Jesus gives an encouragement. And that kind of reminds me, actually, of a book I read, a movie I saw, entitled Unbroken. The film came out a few years ago, and I'm sure many of you have probably seen it. It's the story of Louis Zamperini, who was an Olympic athlete and a soldier for the United States in World War II. Well, as the story goes, Zamperini and some men with him crash in a plane in the Pacific Ocean. They were fighting in the Pacific Theater there. And after they crash, they spend untold 
horrors just waiting in the ocean to be rescued. But lo and behold, they were finally rescued. And they were rescued by the Japanese, their enemies. Well, they were put in prison camps, and it was a very, very difficult life. But there was one guy, Corporal uh, Mutsuhiro Watsunabe, who was particularly brutal. And for some reason, he had it out for Zamperini. And he did a great many things to make Zamperini's life nearly unbearable. Well, the movie and the book get to a point where Zamperini is there, and he's in one of these camps, and he is being tortured by Watsunabe. And it's interesting what Watsunabe does to torture him in this particular instance. He calls Zamperini out, and he stands in there, and he tells him to hold this wooden beam above his head. And he threatens him that if he doesn't hold it up there, he will receive a severe punishment. Well, at this point, Zamperini was already incredibly weak and malnourished, underfed, and he was suffering from a variety of diseases. And as the movie portrays it, it gets to the point where everyone at the prison camp has just stopped and is just watching what is happening. And Zamperini is just holding that wooden beam up there. And I remember watching that movie, and I remember thinking, there's just this pit in my stomach because I was afraid of what was going to happen next. And I was just thinking, just hold on. Just hold on. Well, as the book says it, he held that beam up there above his head for 37 minutes before Watsonabe finally got so angry that he just punched him and knocked it down. And that's a feat that I think many of us would struggle to do, even if we were fully healthy. And so here, in this text, to these people, to this time, Jesus is saying, just hold on. I am coming, I will make you a pillar, the strongest part of my house to hold it up. But just hold on. So Dallas, many of you have come here today, and some of you have had a good week, a good month, a good year. But for others of you, you come here to the foot of the throne of grace at the end of the line because you have nowhere else left to go. You weep at the cross because life has been oh so difficult. And you come here today struggling struggling for whatever reason it may be. And you think, I have been oh so faithful for oh so long, and yet there is no respite. Well, today, Jesus says to you, listen, I know you're weak, and I know you're struggling, but I have given you an opportunity. I've given you an opportunity to spread the gospel. There is a great work yet to be done. And even though you may feel weak, even though you may feel like you don't have it within you to do that, I have given you that opportunity. And believe me, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But just hold on, says Jesus, because I am coming.
Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.